Last evening, we heard a wonderful discussion of exploration in several scientific fields. I want to talk to with you briefly today about a different kind of exploration, an exploration of the human past, an exploration of history. I'd like to think a little about what history is and why a historian does history. These are not easy questions to answer. Many years ago, when our son was quite small and into kindergarten right here in Baltimore, his teacher asked each of the incoming students, now, what does your father do? And one said, he's a doctor. My father's a lawyer. My father's a banker. When Bruce's turn came, he said without a moment hesitation, my father writes letters. We have never known what a five-year-old meant by saying, my father writes letters. Did he mean, which would have been true, that I spent a great deal of time writing letters of recommendation for students to try to get them into graduate school or professional school or to get jobs for them? That's all true. But I'd like to think that maybe he meant something else. Maybe he meant that I spent hours at my keyboard typing letters A, B, C, and so on, which somehow or another magically transformed themselves into words, which then became paragraphs, which then became parts of books. And this is what I hope he thought I did. But perhaps that explanation would not be enough for you. So let me try something a little different. Now, I could try to bluff it out and say, look, I'm a historian, and history is worth studying because it'll tell us what the path to the future is. It'll tell us how to solve the welfare crisis. It'll tell us how to deal with China. It'll tell us what to do about race relations. Now, these are all tremendously important subjects. On them all, I have very strong feelings, but I invoked Professor Stephen Jay Gould of last night to say a scientific view is one thing, a moral view is another. The two both coexist in the same person, but the scientific view does not give an answer to the moral question, nor does history give solutions to our present problems. I could try a different bluffing approach and say to you, look, I'm going to discover something that's so exciting that we would all be just bowled over by it. Suppose in my going through the papers of Abraham Lincoln, I was able to find a letter from Abraham Lincoln, a love letter, saying that Anne Rutledge is the only woman I ever loved. Or suppose I was able to go through the papers of Jefferson Davis and find a communication from John Wilkes Booth saying, I plan to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. Or suppose, but of course none of these things exist and they never do exist. So that would be just a bluff if I tried to tell you that. I could finally try to appeal to your uh, emotions and to your pity by saying that, as Mr. Burke said, uh, I work very hard and that I spend much of my time going through old manuscripts and newspapers and, may heaven forgive me, the Congressional Globe, reading word after word of congressional debates, and that I accumulate large numbers of notes I have 11,000 pages of notes from my last book on Abraham Lincoln. But that's just an invocation of pity. One doesn't collect notes just to be collecting notes any more than a scientist conducts experiments just to conduct experiments. You have to think of something beyond that. Since my son, this same little boy, 
were scientifically minded, I tried a formulation for him that might work for some of you. Namely, that a historian seeks an explanation of past events by discovering a hitherto unsuspected correlation between two independent sets of variables. Now, let me translate that with a very small example. I worked with Abraham Lincoln for a long, long time. Like many others, I puzzled over the difference in the way the Lincoln children turned out. Robert Todd Lincoln, the Lincoln's oldest son, was dour, self-contained, uncommunicative. He knew little about his father. He had almost no relationship with his father. The two younger boys, Willie and Thomas, always called Tad, they adored their father. They were outgoing, they were affectionate, they were warm, they were articulate. They liked nothing so much as fake wrestling with this gigantic parent of theirs, pinning him down on the floor of the White House and pretending to conquer him. But they also enjoyed curling up on the arms of his great chair and hearing him read stories. Why were these two sets of children so extraordinarily different? Now, if I were Dr. Frank Soloway, who's here uh, today as an honoree, I might explain this in terms of birth order, but I'm going to try something a little different. It occurred to me that I ought to take a close look at what Abraham Lincoln was doing while these children were going up, growing up. I constructed a chronology, a detailed day-by-day -day chronology of where Lincoln was when these children were small. When Robert, the sour, or uh, the misanthropic oldest son was a baby, Abraham Lincoln was out on the circuit. He was riding from one circuit court to another to another in a district that was about the size of half of Connecticut. Behind his old horse, old Tom, and in a rickety buggy, he went from one court to another to another. He had to to make money. He couldn't come home over weekends, the roads were too bad, and so he stayed away. During Robert's early years, Abraham Lincoln was away more than half of every year. Then come the two younger boys. I looked at the chronology there, and Lincoln is still riding the circuit. He goes to the same places, McLean County, Logan County, and so on, but he's always home on weekends. What had happened? The hap what had happened was, very straightforwardly, a transportation revolution. During those years, the railroad came to central Illinois, and Abraham Lincoln could conduct his law business and get home weekends. This he did. He was in Springfield virtually every weekend. He relieved his overworked wife, Mary, by babysitting with these two younger children. Uh, he cared for them. He took them to the law office where they broke the pens, they spilled the ink, and they jumped on the law papers, and they just had a whale of a time. He took them for rides in that little wagon along the streets, though sometimes he was so absorbed in reading a book that he didn't notice when they fell out of the back end of the wagon. He would take them for long walks in Springfield, and when inevitably one of them got tired, the little boy would find himself hoisted up and put on the shoulders of this gigantic parent of his. They loved him, they trusted him. This was a nurturing kind of relationship he never had time for in the days when Robert was little. Thus, there is a correlation between two independent sets of variables, namely how the Lincoln children were raised and the transportation system, the coming of the railroad. Now, this is a very small illustration, of course, and it's not even a very important one. And yet, it tells something about what one does in history, 
how one looks for this kind of connection and explanation. And when he finds it, as in this case, and if he finds nobody else had previously discovered it, there's a great sense of triumph. I've explained something that nobody else has previously explained. And this it is that keeps the historian going. This is what makes it worthwhile for him and for all of us as we study history to reinterpret, to rethink, and indeed to relive history. And that's what history is about. Thank you.